It's Sunday afternoon and the crowds are gathering. Welcome to Portobello TEDx. If you've never heard of TED or TEDx before, it's seriously worth looking them up on the internet. You can waste a whole wet Saturday afternoon learning about all sorts of subjects you never even knew existed. The main TED conferences are huge, always held in centres of academic excellence such as here in Edinburgh or down in Oxford. TEDx events, by contrast, are smaller, less grand, much more local. In fact, you probably can't get more local than the one here in Porty. However, they do need a licence and have to follow the rules, one of which is that even though it's being live-streamed, I can't record the talks. But I can speak to the organisers and speakers afterwards. This is the third year in which a TEDx has been held here in Portobello. It's run under the aegis of Tribe Porty and is the brainchild of its founder, Danny Trudeau. Danny, what was the thinking behind bringing TEDx here to Porty? Well, there's actually my friend, who's also a director at Tribe Porty, Johanna Holton, who thought we need to do TEDx Portobello at Tribe. And she had done one at the University of Edinburgh, so she knew how to get a licence and kind of technical side of things. And we thought it was a great way to launch, and it was actually the first time that Tribe opened its doors to the public was our TEDx Portobello three years ago, under the theme of seeing things differently. The theme felt right about Tribe. I wanted to be a wee bit different. I wanted to be creative, and that suited the audience and the kind of direction of the space that I was trying to create. Okay, we're now into year three, and the theme for this year was? Restart the machine. It can be interpreted in lots of different ways, but we kind of thought, you know, when you fail or when you try something, it doesn't work. What makes you start again? What makes you do things differently? What makes you rebrand yourself or an idea and, and start, start the machine again? And there were some really interesting, challenging experiences that people have gone through in order to, as you say, restart that machine. We try really hard. We had loads of nominations this year, 147-odd. We try to get a nice mix of different perspectives, different professions, and something that was kind of true to our theme of restarting the machine. So in the end, you had how many speakers? We had nine speakers this year. A good mix of people, not everybody from Portobello, but we kind of put it out locally for nominations. So we try to keep it local, but obviously don't want to be exclusive to people that are wanting to share their story. Well, let's hear some of those stories. One of the first speakers was Tracy Jolliffe, with the intriguingly titled speech called Dying for a Wee. But behind that humorous sounding title was a very serious message. Well, about 300 people a year in the UK die waiting for a kidney transplant, and there just aren't enough kidneys available. So I don't think the current system we have is working. Wales has gone over to presumed consent, but I think it'll be a while before Scotland gets round to it, so I think we need to do something a, a bit more quickly than that. What you have done by way of example is to have donated one of your own kidneys. Yes, that's right. The law was clarified in 2006 so that you can now donate an organ, usually a kidney, but also possibly a part of your liver, to somebody you've never met. So previous to that, you could only donate to a family member or a very close friend, but now you can just donate a kidney to anybody who needs it. And, of course, you had your operation done at the Royal Infirmary here? Yes, the Royal Infirmary of Edinburgh in 2012. It's major surgery. There's no pretending that it isn't a risky procedure. The mortality rate's about 1 in 3,000 which sounds a lot, but it's, it's no better or worse than any other type of abdominal surgery. But you're still keen for us 
just think more carefully. It's not for everybody. I'm not expecting hundreds of people to start signing up immediately, but it's nice to get an opportunity to raise awareness because the NHS aren't allowed to publicise this because that would be unethical. So it's up to charities and it's up to individuals to tell their story and raise awareness of it so that anybody who does think it's something they could do has somewhere to go and some guidance. What would be the impact, do you think, of more people following your example? There's over 300 people a year die waiting for a kidney and the average time on the waiting list is about three years. So if we had more people donating kidneys, that waiting list is, is going to go down and in an ideal world we wouldn't have a waiting list. That was in essence the call to action at the end of your talk was to turn Scotland from a place where there's a waiting list for kidneys and turn it into something rather different. That would be absolutely wonderful. Scotland is doing better than England in terms of number of people who are on the organ donor register at the moment. We're about 41% of Scottish residents have signed up to that, whereas nationally it's only 33%. So I think Scotland are leading the way already, and it would be nice if we could do that extra step. Another speaker, Selina Hales, has set up a charity to help refugees in Glasgow called Refugees, which is a really intriguing title. What's the objective behind it? The objective is to make sure that when people arrive in the city and in Scotland that they feel welcome and receive a warm embrace that Glasgow is so typically famous for. But what you've done is you've persuaded Glaswegians to write welcome letters and I think that's probably one of the most charming things about the whole thing. Absolutely, it's the heart and soul of the welcome packs. Not only should it make engaging and welcoming people accessible to everybody, those messages from the existing community are incredibly powerful in making sure that people feel welcome in their new home or their new space. So is your charity connected with other refugee charities within Glasgow? So we work really, really closely with the organisations that have direct contact with the refugee community. When we first set up, we didn't want to become another organisation that people had to come and visit. So we deliver our welcome packs to the organisations who work directly with people. So it means we work really closely with the local authorities, with about 15 local authorities around Scotland, with Migrant Support, who are the Asylum Seeker Dispersal Office in the city, and then also with Scottish Refugee Council and the integration networks in the city. You've mentioned the, the word welcome pack twice now. Well, what is in a welcome pack? So our welcome packs have three different types of items in them. They've got essential items, things like toiletries, stationery so that people can take notes, graphical literature to help support the learning of English, umbrellas, we had about a week where we were putting sun cream in them. That's now over. <laughs> so they usually have a warm hat and scarf and gloves because very often Scotland is a much colder climate than people are used to. The second item we put in are an introduction to Scotland. So it's usually iron brew, tonics, tea cakes, some tartan items, guidebooks to the country and to, to the city. And then the final item, as we discussed, are the letters for the locals. So what reaction have you had back from the refugees? From the refugee community, the response has been phenomenal. It's helped us to build relationships and build trust. We've not gone out with an ask, with a, we'll give you this if you give us that. It's just been a gesture of kindness. Adluba Khan has just passed through the final stages of her PhD in landscape architecture. Now, one of the projects that she focused on was actually making, or remaking rather, the conditions in which children learn. Adluba, just explain how you went about taking children out of a crowded class and into the open. 
in most primary schools in Bangladesh, children have their classes in a very poorly lit and ill-ventilated, overcrowded classroom, and the teachers cannot really practice innovative teaching ideas there to make their learning easier and enjoyable. I thought whether we can do something by improving the outdoor environment. Outdoor environment has a positive impact on children's learning, health and well-being, but that, that was something never considered in the context of South Asia or Sub-Saharan Africa. But one of the interesting things you helped create was an amphitheater. Yes. And that is really the exciting thing. So the first step was actually creating a classroom, this outdoor amphitheater where uh, yeah, they can have their classes in open year and with full of light, so there is, we don't need electricity <laughs> to light up the, the outdoor classroom. And so the children were... Yeah, but even better, the children themselves were involved in creating this amphitheater. Yes. So they, they have a real sense of ownership. So they helped in the construction and that created a bonding between them and the environment. And, and they were actually themselves taking care of the classroom. The following that, in my PhD project, where I actually developed the whole school ground, engaging the children, teachers, and the community, where there were several settings. There were a natural learning area with, with plants, and there are gardens where children could grow food in their garden and also make compost. There was shelter there to protect them from adverse weather and also for, for small group learning activities. There. So I, so I, sorry, has it made an impact on their learning? They were engaged from day one in the design process and that kind of created an agency. But more importantly, the whole school ground was used by teachers to teach science and maths. According to the teachers, children found it easier to learn science and maths in the outdoor environment. They were enjoying the learning, so they were coming to school and they were also performing better in their exams. So that worked in Bangladesh. Yeah. Would it work here? I think it would work here because the model I have created that is transferable to any climate and culture and context, when we engage the whole community, children and teachers, in the design, that those contextual elements will come in the design process. Someone who gave a very personal and quite emotional speech was James McGinty, whose wife was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease a little while ago. James, can you just explain what that diagnosis did for you and your wife? The diagnosis really, it shattered us and, and left us like adrift with no idea what to do, where to go for help. We were just floating aimlessly and eventually that aimless floating turned into depression and it took a long, long time before we could take any form of positive out of that at all. So the diagnosis itself just represents a really tough place in our life. But one thing that you discovered through one of the Alzheimer's supports group was just the importance of music in rekindling the memory. Music seems to make some sort of connection with the brain. I don't fully understand it, but what I do understand is that every time Margaret hears a song that she recognises, despite the fact that she can't remember what we had for dinner, or indeed sometimes whether we've had dinner or not, 
she'll remember the, the words to a song that she heard in 1950. And that connection is just wonderful because it just brightens up her whole life and anything that brightens her life brightens mine. To what extent do you feel that there actually needs to be more in the way of support for people like yourself and your wife? In Scotland, we're very lucky in that if someone's diagnosed with Alzheimer's, they're given a key worker for a year who shows them what support can be accessed, what societies there are. That doesn't happen in other countries. I still feel unsupported some days. Yeah, I just feel miserable and I wish there was somebody I could turn to for help. And that sort of support would be invaluable. But whether the country can afford it or not is another matter. But the great thing about your whole talk was the fact that you're actually able to take positives out of what is otherwise a very negative situation. That took a long time. And that's why I spoke here today. When I saw the theme of Restart the Machine, I suddenly realised that's exactly what I've done. And it was a realisation that I'm growing as a person day by day because I'm faced with different scenarios every day. I'm faced with things that I never expected to be faced with and I've had to gather an inner strength that lets me cope with that. And it has turned me into a better person. To what extent then is the fact you're talking about this not just to help you, in a sense, cope, but actually to tell people out there who are facing either themselves or their partner with a similar diagnosis. Actually, yeah, it, it's not easy, but there are things to learn from it. For me, that's a big thing. I do a lot of work with Alzheimer Scotland, and I try to get my message out. I try and do for others what the carers that I met at that session did for me, and, and help people to understand that it is a devastating illness. But it's, it's not the end of the world there and then. There are still times that you can go out and enjoy yourselves. You can be a normal part of society. And that people don't need to treat you like a pariah if you're suffering from dementia. Some days you could speak to Margaret and you wouldn't know there was an issue for about five minutes. And then it would strike you there was something wrong. And as long as she's like that... I'm happy to take her out into the community. We're both happy to talk to people and say, yeah, we've got dementia within our relationship, but we're coping with it and other people can cope with it as well. So that's why I want my message to go public. Final word will go to Danny Trudeau. This is your third year. Are there moves afoot to have year four? <laughs> Every year I say, I'm never, I'm never doing this again. <laughs> And then it's great, and I meet amazing people. So no doubt there'll be another one. Again, this year's been different in that the original team wasn't involved this year so much, so we kind of did a, an interview process for a new team to take on the brand of TEDx Portobello just to see the challenges and how they could bring something different to the event. So I think we've created quite a nice brand. It's, it's been successful for three years. I'm open to lots of things. It might be in different places next year which I would totally be open for I think. Yeah, there, is, there is the importance, it's actually quite a small space Yeah. Uh, the, the hall you were using holds less than 100 people yeah, and you were live streaming yes. to two other venues which was in itself quite a challenge Yeah, well in the live stream you can watch from anywhere so that's a separate license so anybody, I mean I think there were 128 
countries last year watching, so we'll see what the stats are this year. Yeah, and there's something nice about it being small, but then maybe a, a big TEDx would be great too, so it's kind of open. And, cert and certainly new venues are suddenly appearing on the horizon. There's a possibility of using perhaps even the church yeah. space at, at Belfield, which may really be a very dramatic venue to hold such an event. Absolutely. Um, there's no doubt a lot of work behind a, a day, but if, if something comes up where another venue wants to use the brand and the license and go for it, I'm all about being open-minded and change is good. But you've enjoyed this year? have yeah no it's always good always good when it's finished <laughs> okay danny trudeau thank you very much indeed and i think we'll watch this space over the next 12 months thank, thank you, you.